You're listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 67. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr will uncover the mindset of Leah Ditton, professional sailor and ocean rower. Leah has sailed the equivalent of eight laps of the globe, crossed an ocean three times alone, and is the 53rd woman to row the Atlantic. In this interview, you will learn what it takes to mentally and physically prepare to row the ocean and how Leah is preparing to be the first woman to row 5,500 nautical miles from Choshi, Japan to San Francisco, solo and unsupported. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad that you joined me for another 90% Mental episode to hear authentic interviews about the mental game. I'm so excited to share with you Leah Ditton's competitive mindset, but more importantly, what fuels her motivation, how she overcomes fear, and why positive self-talk is a necessity to navigate through the unknowns of the ocean and just learn why she loves to row. So without further ado, let's go talk to Leah. Hey Leah, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to have you on my show to talk about a lot of things that you're doing right now as an athlete, but since you are a licensed captain and an ocean rower, and you're going to be getting into something that's going to be incredible in March 2020, and I don't want to blow the cover yet until we start talking about it in the interview, but I can't wait just to share your mindset as an ocean rower to my my audience. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. All right. All right, so I always ask this question, which I love, and how I kick off every show. It's about mental toughness. So as an athlete, what, do you, what does mentally tough mean to you? So I've been thinking about this, listening to some of your other podcasts, and I, the answer that was immediate to me was mental toughness is the ability to endure. And, but, but let's first unpack that. So endurance, for me, is broken down into perseverance, but above all, determination towards a goal. Because if you don't have that goal set, it's hard to be determined and persevere towards it. And then along that journey, you need tenacity and grit and resilience to overcome any obstacles. Absolutely. I mean, we use that word all the time you know, in our society, You know, being mentally tough. And I think to be mentally tough, there's so many other things that overlap and connect to being mentally tough. And that is, like you said, resiliency and and grit, confidence, presence, all that. So that's awesome. Now, when you look back at your, at your career as an ocean rower, can you share a time where you had to be mentally tough? Well, I think there are quite a lot of times. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, even last, last week, but the most challenging moment of my 17 years experience at sea was actually last summer in June when I rode down from San Francisco to Santa Barbara. So that's a 350-mile row down the coast of California, which, if you're a surfer, you would know is some of the roughest water and the biggest waves to surf. And so I rounded the corner of Point Conception, which has quite a reputation locally and is sort of nicknamed the Cape Horn of the Pacific. And I rounded it, and I thought, great, I've rounded it, it's done. But later that day, there was an enormous catabatic blast down from the mountains, known locally as the Santa Ana winds, that basically pushed me at high speed back out to sea, back out past that point. And so I lost the protection of land at night and 
on the edge of an underwater canyon. And so what happened was waves started to smack into the back of my boat at quite high speed. And they were loud and they roared and they broke clean over the boat. And that was coming on the back of almost two nights of no sleep slash very little sleep. And it was just one thing after another for a good 12 hours. And I was desperately, desperately tired. Wow. And just had to keep going. I had to keep doing whatever was needed of me next to survive that moment safely. Wow. So, yeah, that was by far the hardest thing I've endured. And, and really afterwards, it was a couple of weeks for me to even be able to talk about it, to be able to sort of um, rejoin the story of before, during, and after of my life. Like it was, when I arrived in Santa Barbara, it was like another world. It was 100 degrees, it was hot. It was, it was um, July 4th. And, and then out there was this um, extreme experience that tested me beyond the limit I had already tested, way into sleep deprivation, into physical exhaustion, into a very dangerous situation, all piled up on each other. Wow. What, what was it that kept you going? I mean, with necessity, you just, uh, I had to keep going. I had to do whatever was required next. And there was a moment where I looked forward and I was bringing in the sea anchor, which is a giant parachute. And I had to bring it in because it was creating a hard stop. So the boat, the waves were running over me because I wasn't moving at the same speed as the waves. And I looked forward at this forward cabin, which is a storage compartment, and there was a small hand about the size of a child trying to push out of the hatch. And I was like, that is not real. <laughs> so I had already been hallucinating voices earlier that evening. People were people, people, and I hadn't seen people for 12 days. So I was really excited. I kept opening the hatch, knowing full well there were no people there. But, you know, I was into another realm of sleep deprivation. And, I, yeah, I was hallucinating. Wow. You, you know, and we're, we're going to get into a little more the intimacy of these experiences, because uh, I don't think a lot of people know what the mind and the body has to go through to complete these these voyages or these journeys. It's um, This is why I want you on the show, because it's, uh, I'm excited to learn more about those, those moments, because I can only imagine what you need to do, uh, you know, to to keep trudging and, and make sure that you're hitting your goal. And I think at that moment, what you were going through, you probably don't have a choice unless you don't want to live anymore, right? You, ha- you have to make the right decisions to keep on going, let alone, you know, you're listening to voices in your head and you're hallucinating. I mean, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting and also pretty scary. Yeah. And so there was no moment where I didn't know what to do. I knew what to do based on years of experience. And I think your ability to endure those moments comes on, on the experience of having done other things, preferably incrementally (laughs) earlier. And so that, that spirit, that night was, I call it the night of the breaking waves was in a way very important for me going forward because it's, it's a mark, it's a mark up the wall that I went that high. And so if I get hit harder next time, the distance to that next point higher is hopefully not, not much. Right. And so it's, I mean, as I've heard someone else refer to it as callousing the mind, you know, it's just um, building up, building up the ability to, to, to get yourself through those moments. Absolutely. hundred percent. Now, when you think about 
your passion for for being an ocean roarer. What where did that passion start, and and what is your why when it comes to roaring? Well, I'm a very accidental rower. <laughs> so I'm principally a sailor. So I was a professional racing sailor until I was 30, and by that. The goal is to go as fast as possible across water. Right, right. <laughs> and my my sort of preferred craft was called a multi-hull. So it either has two hulls or three hulls, partly because they go the fastest. Like the America's Cup, they had the catamarans uh, more recently. And they fly across water. So the sensation is sort of more akin to flying than sailing. Mm. And sometimes you can't even feel the waves at all. They go up, you know, they go under you. And you're riding maybe a 10% of the boat and the rest is out of the water. Um, but also it was possible as a woman to get into that area of sailing at a high level because when you sail a multi-hull, it's mostly technique um, at the helm as opposed to brute strength. And so, yeah, I found my home among this particular type of boat and these sailors. But around 30, you know, I wanted to do something different. I qualified as an engineer and started working on giant power boats, which sort of amused me. <laughs> but there were no women really in that field. And yeah, I wasn't comfortable, you know, being in the, among, among quite a different set of people who had chosen that path of the marine industry. Right. Um, and so around 2008, yeah, the financial crisis happened and no one was employing anyone on boats. Uh, if you had a super yacht you couldn't necessarily be seen to be using it and so out of the blue I had a job at the time as a business development manager at a marine electronics company which of course ironically was at a time where there was no business to develop and I was sort of dying I call it my desk sentence and and laughingly said that I had died and gone to an office <laughs> my favorite joke at I the time it. and out of the blue, I get this phone call from a Danish Olympic rower saying, would I like to row the Atlantic, which I found very funny. I mean, I still find it really funny because, you know, I had never rowed. I, I was strong, but I wasn't, you know, rower strong. And I was like, but you, you've never met me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Why would you want to row an ocean in a tiny boat with, with me? And, um, but she was a rower and she wanted my experience of the sea. She wanted to bring, you know, the seamanship side of it. So eventually, some weeks down the line, we met. But by the time we met, I had read, I think there were eight books on ocean rowing at the time. And each book told the story of usually two people who had built the boat themselves, usually in a garage with no experience at all, and then set off to row the Atlantic. And I was like, oh, my goodness, these people have no idea of boat building, of rowing, of ocean you know, passages, and they go off and have these incredible experiences. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so by the time I met her, I was really quite smitten with this idea. And then I met her and she was, she was really very different to me. She was sort of cold and aloof and Scandinavian. And I thought this is just never going to work. <laughs> like, you and me in a boat, it's not going to work. And I went home from that weekend and I thought, what has this woman done? You know, and I, I was like, now I want to row an ocean. <laughs> right. So I, I didn't row with her, but um, I did end up rowing the Atlantic, and that was eight years ago. And I jumped in a boat with a policeman who had fallen out with his rowing partner four days before the departure. Wow. And 
Um, so I didn't know him. He was a stranger. And then we spent the next two and a half months trapped in a boat together, <laughs> rowing the Atlantic. Wow. How was that experience? Well, um, <laughs> to think that you to think that you could just jump in and do that was naive. I mean, yes, I was extremely fit. I was the fittest I felt in my life, but I wasn't rowing fit. So all the little tiny muscles in my fingers and my forearms, I didn't have them. You know, I had muscles for climbing rocks. I had muscles for kayaking and sailing, but they're not quite the same or they're not quite, you know, used in the same way. So I suffered. I suffered a lot of pain in those in those little muscles in my arms um, and, and had quite severe tendonitis. And he suffered too. Oh, wow. <laughs> but his suffering was predictable because... In a sense, I think he didn't want to go. And that's what led to the argument with his partner. You know, they had a big bust up. Now they couldn't possibly row. And that was the end of it. And then when somebody suggested me, you know, he traded in a tall, hairy bloke for professional sailor, a woman. You know, <laughs> right. It was pretty hard for him to say no. You know, wow. Because he was a policeman and this was going to look really good at work. You right, know? right. So, so he sort of rolled with it. But I think... A, you know, underlying that was still this incredible um, anticipation or fear of what it was that he was he had embarked on to do. Mm. Um, and so he was very seasick for the first 10 days and then homesick. And halfway across, I learned that he had never even flown to America. I was like, oh, my God, wow. you must feel like Christopher Columbus about to, you know, <laughs> discover the new world. You have no concept of distance, of time. No right. wonder you're freaking out, you know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, if somebody flew in and told you that the world was flat, we're going to fall off the edge. You'd probably agree. <laughs> so that was that was not about rowing that trip. It ended up being about our relationship and trying to become a team when we were two people who were very, very different. Yeah. Because I was very at home, very comfortable on the ocean and. While he was being sick, I basically rode past the entire fleet, who was also being sick, into third position in the race. And that did not help our relationship at all. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we struggled with wow. each other more than the rowing or the ocean. Got it. Man, well, you've sailed the equivalent of eight laps of the globe. You've crossed the ocean three times alone. You're the 53rd woman to row the Atlantic, as you are just talking about. Do you feel like you can do anything now in in your life, or have you always had that kind of that mindset? No, I I think the early the early undertakings, like my first solo crossing of the Atlantic, was oh wow. I mean, I look back at it and go, oh my god, I didn't know anything. <laughs> but I just had this incredible curiosity to want to know if I could do that myself, because I had come across these sailors who were sailing uh, race across the Atlantic and I was like wow you you just went through that storm that we went through as four people but alone and it just sort of blew my mind that one person could handle all that so that's really where it began I didn't grow up sailing I didn't grow up you know dinghy sailing or I, there was no target set on the Olympics these things were just not um, on my horizon I didn't even know I didn't even know there was a marine industry until I was 20 like mm. people pay you money to go sailing? Wow, wicked. <laughs> Where do I sign up for that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Totally by accident. Um, so, uh, but no, I don't feel invincible. And if anything, some of these experiences along the way have sown seeds of fear. And 
as you get older, those seeds can actually stop you from beginning. Like it took many years for me to go, okay, I'm going to row the Pacific and be the first woman. Like it took quite a number of years to get to that point. Whereas in my 20s, I was like, all right, I'm going to do that next. And then this, you know, right. <laughs> and I was like bold and daring and unstoppable. And then in my 30s, a lot more sort of scared. <laughs> and, you know, the consequences were greater and the stakes higher. And I think the perception of what other people might think weighed heavier, mm. more heavily. Got it. Definitely. You talked about fear. How do you deal with fear out in the ocean when you're all by yourself? Well, I'm on the ocean, I I know what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm a captain. I have years of experience. It's, it's not the ocean part, really, that it's, it's my stumbling block. It's the getting to the point of departure. It's putting the campaign together, raising the money. Um, it's the rest of it. Mm. In fact, a lot of people ask me all sorts of questions at, right now, you know, about what happens when you sleep? What where will you eat? All of this stuff. And I almost feel like going, no, 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 you have it wrong. Right now is the real expedition. And that is the final exam. Mm, <laughs> right. Everything I do now has a huge impact on my success later. And, and you have it wrong. <laughs> it's how right. I eat and sleep and train and think about what I'm about to do in a way that's greater than the actual doing so it's the same say with running a marathon it's the year of training for the marathon that's that's harder in many ways than the actual day of the marathon where you're just putting it all into practice exactly it's you really have to be mindful you need to be in the here and now so you can get prepared right prepared for that departure and i always say there's a great saying is uh, my separation lies within my preparation and if i can if I'm prepared, I'm separating myself from either the the task at hand or the opponents I'm competing against. So I I totally relate what you're talking about. Yeah. So, but yeah, fear. I think you just have to be aware of it. I mean, Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, um, wrote a book called Big Magic, and she has a great paragraph in that where she says, you know, fear is welcome in the bus, but fear cannot drive. And fear has no voice, you know, but, but fear can have a seat in the bus. Right, right. <laughs> and I think if, you, if you're aware that it's there, and I think in some, sometimes it's even healthy that it's there. I mean, if I went to sea and I said, look, I'm fearless, that would be very dangerous. I'd be yeah. scared of that person, <laughs> you know, because um, fear makes you put on your life jacket and, and take precautions and be safe. Yeah. So I think it's, it's healthy. But it should be acknowledged and yep. not not allowed to drive. <laughs> right. That's, and I, that's I agree because it's fear is, I, I think if you can use fear to motivate you, um, like again, it can take a seat but not drive, which I love that analogy. But I, you know, when you think about fear, it's what we create. We We actually create the fear. And if we are the creators of it, then we can remove it. And I hear a lot of people at the time like, man, I just, you know, I want to have a fearless mind. Well, if you are going to, I don't think you can have a fearless mind as far as how you live your life. I think you have to have a little bit of fear to make you a little bit fearless. You can kind of go back and forth with it, have this relationship. So it can take a seat with you, but it's going to be hard to like, A, live with fear your whole life. And it's going to be A, hard to live, to be fearless for the rest of your life. There's a nice balance between the two, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It can't be crippling. 
I mean, last week, so I, last week I rode out to Catalina Island, which is an island 30 miles west of LA. And then I went round it and um, came back. And I knew on day three that I had a decision to make. Do I row all night and head for land to avoid the storm with a risk that I wouldn't avoid it and put myself in a very dangerous position in shallow water, potentially being blown onto the shipping lanes? Or mm. do I go, okay, I accept that I'm entering into the unknown. I stay out here. I embrace the storm. I prepare for it. And then I head in. And a year before, I had faced that same dilemma. I'd missed the, the tide into the Golden Gate Bridge by half an hour. And it was two days into a row. I was extremely tired. And I looked at it at that time as San Francisco and the Bay Area, they were all lit up. That was the known. And out to sea for the third night was the unknown. And I was scared of it. I was afraid. I didn't know what, what would happen next. I didn't know mm. where I'd end up. I didn't know how I would cope with being that tired as I was at the time. And so I called for a tow and I got pulled in. And I actually was really annoyed with myself that I did that because um, I made that choice not to follow my fear and to go back into the safety of the known. And so last week was quite significant when I was like, all right, the storm, it's the unknown. I'm going to stay out. And it was, it was okay, of course, because I knew it was coming. I knew what was going to happen. I prepared for it and I rode it out. Mm. There, there's a great quote from uh, Michael Jordan, and he talks about uh, fear, but he said, you know, it, it's good to be nervous. It's okay to be nervous. It's good to have a little bit of fear, but he goes, but I never went into competition scared or afraid. He goes, and I know this is different from playing a basketball game than being out in the ocean, but he basically was saying, you know, if I felt that I was a, uh, afraid or scared, he says, then I wasn't prepared. And, and I don't know if, does that, is that, can that make the same translation in, in being in the ocean? Yeah, I think so. Because you don't quite, so that storm, for example, I didn't know what would happen, but I knew what I needed to do. I knew, I knew the preparations I needed to make to get ready for it. So yeah, I think he's right. But <laughs> the, the difference I think with ocean or wilderness or, or mountain versus you know, a sport like basketball is that basketball players train to be at their best, to, to perform their best when they are at their best. And what I've come to learn is that being out in the ocean, you need to train to be at your best when you're at your worst. Ah. And that's a little harder to, to get, you know, that experience from. And the only way you do it is by going out there. Wow. Endlessly. Yeah. And seeking different conditions that will put you over the edge into new territory. For sure. Absolutely. I love that. But yeah, most of yeah, most high performance sport is about optimizing, you know, your life, your nutrition, your sleep to be at your best and then you perform at your best. But obviously the ocean isn't like that. It's much more like warfare, you know, where soldiers go out and they're underslept and sleeping in a ditch and <laughs> right. <laughs> they're at their worst. Right, exactly. It's a great point. You know, before we get into your 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 big voyage here in March 2020, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your mindset. You know, what you have done and what you're going to be doing, most people would classify that as being brave and maybe crazy, but how, how would you describe your mindset? 
Well, it feels quite normal now. And I, that's exactly where I wanted it to be. Awesome. But I had a coach for a month only two years ago. And he was like, I, he, had, he had an epiphany. He's like, I got it. I got it. Where you need to get to is this is a lifestyle. It's not an event you're doing or an expedition. It's just a way of life. Yeah. And so you set off one day to row across the Pacific. And it's just like any other day. And amazingly, over two years, I've achieved that. Like to row last week wasn't a big event. I just went for a row. It's like a training. It was like a run around the block, but it was just longer. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, that's where I'm at. It's a lifestyle. It's, not, it's my way of life, just like a triathlete trains and then competes. And that's where I wanted to get to, and that's, I think, where I'm at. I love it. I love it. And, I, and it, it kind of goes, you know, same thing for me, like with my work. You know, the work that I do, I work with athletes, I'm a mental performance coach. It's not just work, it's, it's, the, it's a way of life for me. I have to be my work, and I want to be my work. So it's, and, and I enjoy it, and I love it, and there's times where I struggle at it, but there's times where I persevere, and I get so much joy out of it. And that's the main thing, is I get joy out of this. So I, I, it's just a lifestyle for me. It's not really work anymore. Right, I think, um, was it Mark Manson wrote a book called... Uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. I love <laughs> I it. I love it. Yeah, you can. Anyway, my favorite quote from that book was that all jobs suck at some point, and that basically what you need to do is choose your favorite flavor of shit sandwich. <laughs> and so row, <laughs> rowing an ocean is not for everybody, really not for most people, but it is for me my favorite flavor of shit sandwich. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> it has its good days and it has its bad days, but uh, you know, I, I like what I'm doing. And I think that's the part that, that is less obvious to grasp to most people. It's like, I like being out there. You know? yeah. In fact, I think it, it's a gift. I think I'm, I'm extremely privileged to be able to go out and play in the ocean, that I have a front row seat in the greatest cinema in the world. I mean, I just never get tired of the sunrises and sunsets and the wildlife interactions. I wow. just never get tired of it. I, I, bet. I don't know why, but I just don't. <laughs> well, I, I can only imagine. I mean, you, you do a really great job on on capturing your experiences by posting videos on YouTube, and you really bring the viewer to your life. And just putting myself in your shoes, just waking up to the sunrise, seeing a whale breach. Um, I, I can only imagine seeing sharks is a little scary too, but just the things that you get to experience and smell and hear is just, you don't, you don't get it living in San Francisco. You get it out there on the ocean and it's just, um, having the front row seat is probably a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think when I'm out there, I feel like I belong out there and because I'm in a boat that has no engine and makes no sound other than the sound of the oars in the water, I think most of the wildlife think that I am one of them. And they come up to find out. <laughs> if you go in the water to clean the bottom of the boat, the fish will try and nibble your feet. Because if you think about being a fish in the middle of an ocean, you're either um, prey or predator. Yep. <laughs> so, and um, for dolphins and whales, they, they think you are like just a very strange one of, one of them. And they often try and communicate. You can hear the dolphin um, squeak. They come right at you and kind of squeak. And whales sonar ping the boat and you go click click clicking inside the boat and i just lie in the boat and i'm like i don't speak whale <laughs> i wish i did you know <laughs> <laughs> but i don't know what you're saying but it's great that you're saying it <laughs> i love it 
How would you describe, uh, we're going to go a little bit deep here, but as far as your soul, like how would you describe what your soul feels when you're out there in the ocean by yourself? My soul, hmm, that's a really good question. I think I feel connected. I feel like I have my place in the world when I'm out there. But but again, back to that idea of of feeling privileged to be out there. I also feel that it's my responsibility to take as many people with me as I can. Mm. And so I'm very diligent about writing a blog every day. I actually audio blog it, read it into my phone, and then zap it via Bluetooth through a satellite device. And I know that I'm going somewhere that most people will never go or never want to go. And so I should describe that as best I can and in order to take, you know, as many passengers on the bus. So, yeah, I feel that, you know, connection with where I am, but also that I am the eyes of everybody else. So it's a duality of not just me being there in that moment, but, but something greater than myself. And now that in this particular project next year, um, it's really grown into an education program that I'm extremely proud of and cannot wait to deliver for four to 11 year olds, um, entirely science-based, but also quite creative with a lot of you know, experiments and stuff. But because I think it's really important that there are you know, women like me who interact with young girls you know, from about age six to say, look, you know, I'm living way outside the box you know, and I wanna push open push open the doors of what you think is possible of what for your own life absolutely being an example and charging away of being the first woman to do a few things that you're going to be doing here in the next year or so is going to be it's going to be awesome and it's going to be great to to experience that i think what you bring to us is 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 inspiration um hope and you know, competitiveness, if you will, because I think what you're doing, you need to have a lot of, you need to be competitive to do what you're going to be doing and what you have been doing. But again, before we get into the competitive part and what you're going to be doing next year, you know, I, I find this really fascinating too, because some of the things you've done in the ocean alone is lonely. So how, how do you deal with the loneliness and, and are you truly alone? I mean, when you have all these whales and sharks and fish, share, share with us a little bit about being alone in the ocean. Well, I think the first thing to distinguish is being alone and lonely are not the same. And in fact, um, you know, I grew up in London. I was born in London. And the times I've lived in London, I felt the loneliest, surrounded by people. So I'm out on the ocean by myself. But m most of the time, I am not lonely. But in terms of I wish someone else could make me lunch <laughs> or row this boat for me now, <laughs> there are occasionally, you know, <laughs> I'm lonely. But, um, you know, even though I say that, it's interesting that when I get to land, I'm very excited again to see people. You know, you can't forget that we are tribal as humans. And so, you know, when, my, um, when I trip into sleep deprivation and... You know, I'm going into this other space, like it's people's voices that I hear. It's that little hand that I saw. I'm trying to reconnect with other people. So, I mean, I don't really know the answer to it, but, but most of the time I'm busy. <laughs> you know, I'm rowing the boat or I'm managing the boat or I'm sleeping or whatever. And while I row, I listen to audiobooks. So mm. there's always a voice in the boat, if you like, with me. Well, that's good. That's good. Now, how important is it for you to have a healthy self-talk? You know, again, when you're alone, you're on the boat, obviously it's great that you have 
you know, audiobooks and, and, and what have you with you, but how important is it to, to have that good relationship with the way you talk to yourself? I think it's important at sea in a very big way, and I'm very good at it in sea in a way I'm not very good at it on land. Mm. <laughs> I don't quite understand that. You know? um, I'm, I've, been, I've got myself out of some incredibly dicey situations by literally talking to myself, sometimes even out loud. Like I got caught in a squall off Berkeley this was a year and a half ago, back when I was, in hindsight, a little inexperienced than at least less experienced than I am right now. And I got caught in this squall and it just blitzed the horizon. Like there was suddenly no land <laughs> around me and it was blowing about 35 knots and it was so dangerous that moment. And I, all I could see left was one blinking light of the breakwater and I needed to get in that breakwater. And I was going so fast past it with this, this wow. you know, this uh, score. And I was like, come on, Leah, come on, Leah. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I was like out loud shouting myself to do this. And um, when the score hit, you know, it was spinning the boat 360, like it was that strong. And I was like, yes, you can. Come on, Leah. Yes, you can. And I, was, I was so proud of myself for that moment. Afterwards. Awesome. I awesome. think it actually was one of the greatest moments of self-talk in my life. But I wish I could do that on a more, you know, less crisis basis on a day-to-day basis. Because I think I get, I get bogged down by negative self-talk, you know, on a more day-to-day basis, just like anyone else. Right. But in that when I really need it, it comes through. That's <laughs> but, good. You know, on a day-to-day basis of going, oh my goodness, there's so many things to do today. <laughs> um, you know, how much do I achieve and all that stuff? Like, yeah. I mean, actually, off the back of this phone conversation, I should be practicing more of that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. well, making it's, me realize that. You know, it's 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 um it's very important the way we talk to ourselves, and and I say this, not listen to ourselves, because we. I mean, we go through, what, 70,000 thoughts a day on an average. We go through, we can experience up to 27 emotions. So there's a, there's a lot of traffic that goes in, in through our head and through our bodies. And if we're not mindful to get in control in the here and now so we can talk to it versus listening to it, I think that's where the damage happens is when we listen to our thoughts and we start listening to the negativity. And sometimes when we start doing that, it's very hard to turn it off. I agree. I think... I think the bit that's missing is leadership of our internal voice. Because if you think of that, in that moment, I'm leading my own thought pattern and in a very powerful way. But for the most part, we don't direct our thoughts. With a self-talk, it's just like a chatter of a whole bunch of people in a room. Um, And I know this a little bit because I go to the float tank every two weeks, the sensory deprivation tank. And, you know, you lie in there and you go, I'm going to have, such a great rest and then you, you know your body kind of fades away into the epsom salts and then your mind is just like one thing after another it's like a filing cabinet just coming at you and then slowly you either go okay hello thought and you kind of grab it and pass it on and you know, right. grab the next and pass it on and slowly this slows down until you know you just sort of relax and it takes time. It takes an hour sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. It does. You know, and with regards to, to negative self-talk, our good friend Joanna Bloor, she has a, I love the name that she makes up for negative self-talk. She ca- calls it the itty-bitty shitty committee. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's just the funniest thing. I'm like, oh, that is, that is perfect because uh, that little voice can turn into a big committee if you let it. That is so great. <laughs> I know, right? 
<laughs> that's that's what makes her so special, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, well she's she's definitely leading her self talk. Oh man, sure. <laughs> she is for sure, absolutely. So let's you know let's finally get into your big your your big goal task next year. You're going to be rowing you know 5,500 nautical miles from Kyoshi, Japan to San Francisco solo and unsupported. Only two people have completed this task, which were men, but both of them had to be towed in for the last 20 to 50 miles. So when you think about this, I know there's so much preparation to get ready for this this excursion, journey, race, however you call it. What does this goal mean to you? Hmm. Um, I think at the now, from the perspective of now, as opposed to when I first started um, embarked on this this journey, now it's more about completing it. It's about it's just about closure. It's about closing in on closing out on the thing that I have set out to do. I'm so ready now. <laughs> After two years and two thousand miles, I just ticked over two thousand miles uh, last week on my boat's um, on odometer, and um, and I'm not afraid of it anymore. In fact, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a joy ride. I can't wait. Yes, I love <laughs> I it. I just want to like not do media and not hustle for funds anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you get to that point, you're like, Ocean, give it to me. <laughs> right, right. Um, um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to know, you know, put all of the things that I've learned and um, draw it all together. And that's really where I'm at. But in a way, the actual row across the Pacific and the you know, the potential record have fallen far away in importance. And all the things I have gained in the last two years are much greater now than a record and a Guinness world record will ever be. And that's quite a strange place to be in. It's almost like, well, do you need to go? <laughs> but I do need to go because it's the end. It's the, it's the final exam. Yeah. Um, but I could not have predicted the journey that it's taken me on. You know, the, the failures I've experienced and, um, you know, some of those training roads were really, really hard with unforeseen outcomes that were challenging. Right. And um, I parted ways with my sponsor, my original sponsor, over the decision to build a boat that was competitive with a men's record. And I didn't expect when I, when I made that decision to part ways with them that I would feel ashamed, that I would feel embarrassed, that, that it hadn't quite worked out with that sponsor. And that took a while to get over, that you know there was a change in the plan. And a few sponsors that were about to come on board didn't. And I switched from then, that point, from sponsored to crowdfunded. And that was amazing. Not because of the money, but because every time somebody signed up on Patreon to support me for five bucks or 10 bucks. It was like they stepped into an imaginary room and said, I believe in you, keep going, I'm with you. And it was just, yeah, it was like having this group of people in this imaginary room and I guess in my self-talk of, yeah. of saying, you know, we're in for the ride. We're not just throwing 10 bucks in a GoFundMe. We, we want to come with you the whole way. And that was empowering. Wow. In fact, so empowering. I'd like to do that for others. I'd like to kind of create a believer's foundation that supports sort of impossible, obscure, difficult projects <laughs> <laughs> Man, <laughs> and the people that struggle to achieve them. You know? Right. 
That's beautiful. It's like it's like them saying, I got your back. Yeah, because, you know, at the end of the day, we all need believers, no matter what we set out to do or who we are. We just we need cheerleaders. Yep. And 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 the amount of money or time that you, you give somebody is obviously relative to your your choice and your position to do that. But it's still as important as the next person who who believes in you. Right. You know, I want to ask this question when you get back from from your journey, um, but it's more so it's about what you've learned about yourself. So when you think about your whole career as a captain, as a rower, what do you what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? Another great question. <laughs> I think I've learned that I have a voice and that I should use it and use it for good. You know, the best thing that could come out of me rowing the Pacific is that, you know, several hundred girls and boys in schools across the world think differently about their own future. Because, you know, the children are the change makers of the future. In fact, I met some of the the Minister of Sport and the Minister of Education in Japan who basically begged me to come back after the row and, and instill a sense of connection and ownership of the ocean. That is a little bit lacking in Asia because they eat half of it. Wow. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, in terms of feeling like there's a higher purpose and a mission, that may be it next is to, is to tell my, using the platform of my story and my achievements to, to, to give others the, you know, a focus and empower them to do great things for the planet. That's beautiful. I love it. I think it's great. I think uh, I think your your voice is being amplified with the efforts that you've what you put out so far and what you're going to be doing. And I I know that I'm going to be a cheerleader for you. I'm going to support you, and I can't wait for you to complete this goal and be and watch you be the first woman to row 5,500 miles from Japan to San Francisco. Um, it's going to be exciting. I know there's going to be a lot of people pulling for you. So. It's going to be really exciting, and, and again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time just to share your thoughts um, about your mindset and what you're getting prepared for in the next year and just being a part of the show. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you for the you know, great questions. You had me pause and have to think there for a few, a few times. So, awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll listen to this again and, and have more thoughts, I'm sure. <laughs> well, beautiful. So well, I'm gonna, I want to have you on the show when you complete this task and this goal. Definitely so we can talk more about it. Super. Thank you very much.